do you want to know how to value a company and what Julia Roberts has to do with it? Then listen to Bharat Kanodia in this episode number 73. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So um, why is uh, why was Julia Roberts selected to play the character in Pretty Woman? I mean, there are so many other women they could have selected. Why was she selected? Well, because the producer or the director liked her. She was fit for the role. That's why she's getting paid $20, $40 million, whatever she gets paid nowadays. So the same reason the founders are important. You have to see their track record. And you have to see that, hey, does the investor believe in this one founder or the co-founders? Um, and what does the investment community think working with these founders is worth because that's really what you're valuing. There's no product. There's no revenue. So what you're really valuing is what is it worth to me to work with Christian? The evaluation is one of the most difficult exercises in the startup world. How can you put a price tag on a company that doesn't exist yet? Get help from an expert like Bharat Kanodia. Bharat has valued over 2,000 businesses and signed off on assets worth 2.6 trillion in value, which is basically the price of Apple. He has appraised unique assets like the Golden Gate Bridge, Atlanta Airport, Uber, Airbnb, Yahoo, Brooklyn Bridge, Mirage Casino, among many others. Barat is the founder of Veristrat, a company that helps startup founders and VCs by telling them what their companies are worth. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his family and enjoys sailing, golfing, skiing, and horseback riding. In this episode, we are talking about the history of entrepreneurship in San Francisco, failure culture, Julia Roberts, NFTs, and much, much more. This episode was recorded in January 2022, and I hope you enjoy the show the same way as I did. Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Gets Together podcast with another one of my favorite topics. I think I, since I do the podcast, I have a lot of favorite topics, I just realized. Today, we are talking about valuation and why it's necessary to put price tags on asset assets and how that work. And I'm very happy today to welcome Bharat Kanodia. He is from San Francisco, which in my opinion is uh, the motherland of tech entrepreneurship. Bharat, welcome to the show. Christian, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, yes, San Francisco is, uh, uh, as they say, is a, is a, is a mad city inhabited <laughs> for the most part, by perfectly insane people. Um, San Francisco. Let's talk a little bit about the history of San Francisco. Um, we, I think it started in the 70s with, uh, with Apple, that uh, Apple Microsoft, uh, that uh, caught my eye um, back in the 80s as the first tech companies that evolved out of uh, with this new spirit of entrepreneurship. Can you give a little bit more insights uh, as an insider, what uh, evolved uh, in the last 30, 40 years in your area? Yeah, I mean, the, the um, 
The boom really started in the 60s with Hewlett Packard. And with the invention of the silicon chip, um, companies like Intel and others emerged out of here. Um, and Stanford University um, has always been the um, biggest patron and supporter of uh, technology and tech entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, it always helps when your patron has a $35 billion endowment fund. Um, you know, that number hurts. Um, and, and Stanford is really the engine behind um, technology boom because most of the entrepreneurs come out of there. They also fund many of the uh, companies. The VCs come out of there. They provide many incubators. So uh, they provide research labs and space. So um, that really was the seed, if you will. Um, and then also, let's not forget, San Francisco um, has always been the place where people who are not afraid to take risks go to. If you imagine, right, in the in the early to mid-1800s, it would take people six months to get to San Francisco. They would either, you know, come on wagons or on horse-drawn carriages or um, via ship. And they would have to uh, endure the six-month-long journey and then get here and then make a life for themselves because there was nothing here. And they came pretty much empty-handed unless you were rich on the East Coast. Um, and it, it is these um founders and dreamers and entrepreneurs who uh, discovered gold and started the gold rush, who discovered silver, started the silver rush, mm -hmm. who, dis who, um, who, and who started the tech boom. So it, it's a, it's a combination of talent and capital and the zeal to make something happen. That's very interesting. I never saw it that way that uh, San Francisco has a very long history of being a melting pot of the boldest of the bold uh, because it took so much time to travel there. And uh, this is definitely nothing for people that are looking for security. Um, and this might be really one of the routes why uh, the area around Stanford uh, still attracts uh such personalities. Can you talk a little bit about uh, entrepreneurship uh, in your area? How do you deal with failure culture? I mean, we have a lot of discussion here in Europe that uh, we need different failure culture. Uh, how is it in, in, in the Bay Area? Well, um, there's failure culture everywhere, um, you know, and, and I think failure culture is more in your head than any place else. Um, The people that I have seen who are successful today uh, are the ones who've tried many, many, many things. Mm -hmm. You try 10 things and one works. Literally, the success ratio is 10%. Um, and there are many people who never take any risks. Um, and yeah, they lead a life of uh, security and happiness. Um, and that's okay too, right? Not everybody wants the same thing. Um, so to each 
their own. So I would say the failure culture or the success culture is less on the outside and more on the inside mm -hmm. of the person um, on how he or she uh, gauges uh, their success or failure in what they're doing. That's, I think, a key point. It's an internal problem and not an external problem. So the responses from other people don't really matter. It's just how you perceive it. I think the key point, what you said, is that the success rate is only 10%. So nine out of 10 attempts are bound to fail anyways in entrepreneurship. So you have to be instead happy that, you know, if four of your ideas or five of your ideas did not work great five done you got four more to go and then you find the 10th one which is going to be successful that's, that's the right approach mm -hmm. that's the, the other way of looking at it is of course you know oh my god i tried four or five things and nothing worked okay i'm not going to try anything else that's another way of looking at it so again it's all in your head if the noise in your head stops that's when you start listening to outside so make sure you don't stop the noise in your head keep that going don't listen to outside i think that i hope i can uh, say it in the right way there's this proverb from martial arts uh the master failed more often than the apprentice apprentice ever tried so i think this is the approach also in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship i think is the core of your business because people who want to play it safe don't have a problem with valuations but the minute to say i want to create something lasting i want to create a business they tap into one problem uh they need investors very often and investors then ask one question um What is your business worth? Can you give us a little bit of background to your business? What is your profession in the Bay Area? So I'm a valuation person. So nowadays, whenever you hear of a company or a founder or a startup, um, the first thing you hear is, oh, this company just raised $100 million at $2 billion valuation, or this company just uh, uh, IPO'd for $50 billion and raised $5 billion or something like that. Um, there's somebody behind the scenes who is doing these evaluations. Um, and that is somebody like me. It's very interesting what you say. I just uh, I wrote down the latest valuations that caught my eye. I think uh, Apple is uh, very interesting with... Uh, I think it's a little bit below three trillion again. It was a little bit above uh, three trillion a couple of days ago. Then I also read today on uh, LinkedIn that Y Combinator um, remodeled their investment approach. They now invest $125,000 for 7%. And behind is also a valuation. And uh, Andreessen Horowitz raised another $9 billion to invest in tech was another one of the messages. And I think also they will have a lot of valuation problems. Uh, Can you explain in simple terms uh, what valuations are for and how they work? Oh, sure. So basically, you know, when a company starts out, right, usually say, let's assume it's two smart guys, a great idea, and two laptops working out of a garage, right? What is that for? <laughs> um, there's no product. There's no revenue. But it's two smart guys, mm -hmm. an idea, and two laptops working out of a garage. What's that worth? 
used to be that that is worth about half a million dollars. Now that is worth about a million dollars. So if they are looking to raise, say, $200,000, they have to give 10 or 20% of the company. Or if they're looking to raise half a million dollars, they have to give away 50% of their company. So it starts out this way now and then goes from there. Um, Now, most times the subsequent investors that come in, it is to their benefit to at least double the valuation at each inflection point. Because unless they're doubling the valuation, they're not showing to the external world that this company is growing significantly and you want to be a part of it. Because let's face it, right? Most startups, um, they they never have a profit, right? And um, they're lucky if they have a product or they're lucky if they have revenue. Yet, um, startups need to attract um, employees. They need to attract customers. They need to attract investors. And how would they do that? Um, They do that by using a currency called valuations. Because valuations tells the world, the employees, the investors, and the customers, how great they are, how awesome they are. That, oh, they just raised so much, so and so money at $2 billion or $200 million valuation. Oh, they must be good. That's it. Right? It's so it's, it's similar to your SAT scores or GMAT scores, right? Oh, you know, Christian scored 1400 on his GMAT. Oh, Christian must be smart. Well, yeah. But also not necessarily. Maybe he just knows how to crack the test. But that's the benchmark. So a great valuation is similar to standardized testing, um, like TOEFL or GMAT or SATs or whatever you want to call them. That's a very interesting points, amazing points. Um, when I was um, getting my master's degree in Austria in business <coughs> management and economics, um, I learned a lot about valuations, um, about companies that are already have established businesses. So when I started working in listed companies, uh, we put price tags on basically everything we bought. And it was pretty, let's say, pretty simple, straightforward. You take the revenues, you look at the cost, and you have the remaining cash flow. You take the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years or an endless row of years, you assume a little bit of growth rate in stable industries, discount it back to now, and here we go, we have the value. Um, Simplified. And then I moved into the startup world and I thought these models won't work because the companies don't have revenues. And very often the industries even don't exist yet because it's a... the first company that moves into that space. And I always wondered how do valuations work in that area? What is your perception of this uh, startup and scale-up area? Uh, how do you evaluate such companies? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. 
Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. So... You, I mean, there are multiple ways of evaluating a company. One is you look at the cash flow this company is going to give you for the next two, five, 10 years. And you estimate that cash flow out 10 years and then you present value it. That's called the income approach. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is like a sales comparison approach where you're trying to find a similar company that was sold or bought. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're saying that, okay, this company is the same as this company. And if this company was sold for $10 million, this company is worth $10 million. That's second way of doing it. Or the third way of doing anything, uh, valuing anything is, um, okay, we have a company. Uh, what will it cost to build a similar company from the ground up? How much investment, how much cost will it take? That's the third way of doing it. Um, those are the traditional methods. When we're looking at startup, these three methods don't really work because um, the first method, the income approach, there's no revenue. Uh, there's no cash flow because there's no profit. Okay, so you can't use that. Second. It's hard to find a comparable because many of the startups are uh, trailblazers. They are unique or they might be even creating an industry as they go along. I mean, imagine um, valuing Facebook in 2004, 2005 and saying that, oh, it's a social media company. And people are like, what is a social media company? There's no industry. Facebook yeah. created the industry. Um, and the third is what will it cost to create something like Facebook? Dude, I don't know. hundred billion dollars, pick a number. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not smart enough. So, so the way you value startups is really two things. One is you value them on their revenue. So generally you would go, okay, you know, a similar company is selling for, three times revenue or five times revenue or 10 times revenue or 50 times revenue or hundred times, whatever that number might be, because there's no profit. So you can't use any underlying cash flow metrics. You always have to use a revenue number or the top line number. Another way of doing it is, um, hey, um, this company makes enterprise software for utilities. Um, okay, great. I have another company that makes enterprise software for utilities. Okay. How many customers do they have? Five. How many customers do they have? 10. How much are they worth? 20 million. Okay. If they have, if they have 10 customers and they were 20 million, they might be worth at five customers, maybe 10 million. That's another way of doing it. So basically you're trying to look for some kind of a metric that aligns you 
with a similar company in the same industry or in a comparable industry. That's that's great. Um, but they need already to have some sort of revenues and there must be also some, some other companies. Let's go to your initial example with the two guys in the garage uh, who are working. I mean, if, I think Apple started this way and uh, Microsoft started this way. The two crazy nerds in the garage. Uh, and they come to the conclusion they need some money and go to an investor and they have no revenues, they have a pitch deck, they have an idea. And I always wondered uh, how these guys negotiate then the deal. Um, I mean, investor might say, good, I give you 10 million and 90% of your company is mine. Uh, but from what perspective? And then I read that Y Combinator takes 7% for $125,000 investment. So there is uh, also evaluation included uh what's your opinion on that how do these people uh negotiate the value of the company so you have a book behind you <clears throat> atomic habits right mm -hmm. yeah and here's another book by somebody i know at my business um Why is Atomic Habits so famous and this book not so famous? I've read both books. This book has great content also. Mm -hmm. Atomic Habits has great content also. But why is Atomic Habits literally on every bookshelf nowadays and everybody you speak to, you know, like back in the day, if you ask somebody, oh, have you read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Yes, I read it. Have you read it? Oh, you have to read it. It's one of those books, right? Or, you know, uh, uh, Good to Great or, um, uh, you know, The Da Vinci Code, right? I mean, all these books, why are some books so famous and others not? Um, or why do people pay um, $100 million dollars or $200 million dollars for a Picasso versus somebody might give you, I don't know, 20 bucks for this? If I told you this was this photograph was taken by Picasso, would you pay more? Why? If you say yes to that question, think about why. Hmm. And when there's no revenue, when there's no product, and there's really no metric to gauge the valuation of a company, then it really boils down to two things. The founders, number one. What is their track record? Do you trust them? Do you think they can deliver what they say they're going to deliver? That's one. And two, <clears throat> some people find, uh, I don't know, Pamela Anderson hot. Some people find Jennifer Lopez hot. Some people find Hugh Jackman hot. Why? I don't know. They have their own reasons. So the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? You might think um, Atomic Habits is a great book. I don't think it's a great book. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's a great book, but <laughs> I could make a case that I don't like it. Sure. I'm not wrong. And you're not wrong either. 
the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So um, why is uh, why was Julia Roberts selected to play the character in Pretty Woman? I mean, there are so many other women they could have selected. Why was she selected? Well, because the producer or the director liked her. She was fit for the role. That's why she's getting paid $20, $40 million, whatever she gets paid nowadays. So the same reason the founders are important. You have to see their track record. And you have to see that, hey, does the investor believe in this one founder or the co-founders? And what does the investment community think working with these founders is worth? Because that's really what you're valuing. There's no product. There's no revenue. So what you're really valuing is what is it worth to me to work with Christian? How do you value that? You can't. So then it comes down to, okay, well, I want to work with Christian. Christian, what do you want? How can I work with you? And Christian says, $10 $10 million. And I say, no, 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 $10 million is too much. How about five? And then Christian says, all right, let's settle on eight. I say seven and a half. All right, settle in a half. So at some point, it comes down to really negotiation and uh, feeling and comfort and, and uh, chemistry or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. The need and the want that I want to work with Christian. And Christian says, I want his $5 million. So the answer is somewhere in the middle. So when you don't have any other metric, you don't have any traditional metric, you know, it really is comes down to, hey, these two, three, four guys want to work together. How can they strike a deal? And then it's negotiation. And um, and the starting point is a million dollars. Two guys, two smart guys with an idea with two laptops working out of a garage, starting point is a million dollars. You mean million in value, valuation. So the first- in valuation. First the, mm. Yes. So this is basically the Y Combinator model then, where they say 7% for 125,000, a little bit more than a million, but- uh, Close enough. Close enough, close enough. Okay, that's great. I mean, you you brought the, the example, uh, let's move to another- uh, part of the industry that is also, I perceive it as a startup world. You brought up this picture example with Picasso. Um, NFTs was mm. something that caught my in the last year. I think the first that were pushing this topic in my world was Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, 24-7 online, buy NFTs, buy NFTs. And I thought, why should I pay something for digital pictures? And I think it was last year that I heard of the year before last year that Beavers sold uh, every days for, if I remember right, $65 million. Um, what is the rationale in your opinion behind such, such values? Is it just psychology or do you also have, uh, do you also see hard metrics behind it where you can uh, tie down the price tag on that? Do you own a domain name? Yes. What domain name do you own? Um, CS Life Science Invest, Life Science Get Together, uh, okay. something like that. Well, CS Lifestyle Invest, uh, 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 Life Science Invest. What is that worth? How much did you buy it for? 
ten dollars, something like that. Yeah, something like yeah. that. I can't remember. It was pretty cheap. Would you sell it for ten dollars? Um, I need it. No, <laughs> so would you sell it for fifty dollars? Fifty thousand dollars. This is exactly what NFTs are. So NFTs today, we think, oh my God, what are NFTs? I don't understand it. It's like, oh my. <laughs> 20 years ago, people had the same emotions about domain names. Mm -hmm. What is a domain name? I don't know. Where do you go buy it? I don't know. Well, that guy just sold a domain name for a million dollars. What? I can buy a domain name for $10. What? If he can buy a domain name for $10, why is he paying a million dollars for the domain name? Remember those conversations? Mm -hmm. Bill Gates had paid a million dollars for the Microsoft.com domain name. And it's like, what? Bill Gates got so much money. Why is he wasting his money? I can buy Microsoft.com for $10. But well, well, wait, it's not available. Back in the day, terms like email or PDF, or text messages, right? Or domain names were like, whoa, I don't understand this. I, I don't get it, you know. But today, it's every day. We use these terms every day. Mm -hmm. And most people have at least one domain name. At least one. Similarly, NFTs today are new. And many people are not familiar with what they are or how they work. And especially around valuations. If they don't even know what they are and how they work, they are most confused about the valuations. Give it time. People will start understanding. Right? People like now, even my father understands what a domain name is. 20 years ago, he did not. Even I did not. Um, but now everybody does. Same thing with NFTs. NFTs are similar to domain names, except NFTs are really just smart contracts. You know, it's a it's a higher level electronic asset. Um, but but the but the DNA, if you will, is similar. Um, you know, so back in the day, the whole thing was a land grab. They will just buy all the domain names you can. You know. I know people who used to own 5,000 domain names, you know, and then they just had this huge domain name bank and they would sell them one by one. People are doing the same thing. It's just a new asset class. So if NFL or NBA or uh, Mark Wahlberg, they have all these assets all around the world and they found a way to monetize the old films they have of plays or the um, footage they have of them shooting certain scenes which are very famous and if they can sell those clips yet have it contained and protected against copyright laws and um, against intruders or hackers, well, why not? It is a new asset class. I am more bullish on NFTs than I am on Bitcoin or something else. Similar to email and PDFs 
and domain names have stayed and stuck around for a long time. Do mm-hmm. uh, you remember a company called BlackBerry? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Canadian company back in, yeah. I think, 2005, six with... Uh, Do you hear some, about them anymore? A little bit lately in the security yeah. space, but not in the traditional uh, smartphone space. They're gone. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Sometimes specific asset for specific use come and go. But the idea, the concept, the tool, the asset class stays. Email is here to stay. PDFs are here to stay. NFTs are here to stay. Mm-hmm. Particular or specific cryptocurrencies, they might come and go. That's interesting. When I look at uh, YouTube, Bitcoin, let's stay a little bit with cryptocurrencies. Uh, Michael Saylor is one of the... Uh, how, how do they call it? Bitcoin maximalists or Anthony Pompliano, who believe that Bitcoin might go higher than 1 million. Uh, what's your opinion on valuation of cryptocurrencies that uh, are all over YouTube these days? You know, they say like breeds like. If people want to believe something, who is who am I to stop them? Mm-hmm. If they own so much Bitcoin, it is to their benefit to tell everybody that, hey, Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, because that's how Bitcoin is going to increase in value. It's all supply and demand. There's no other use for it. So the only way the value will increase is by if I tell you, Christian, you should buy Bitcoin. And if Christian buys Bitcoin, my Bitcoin's value will go up. Mm -hmm. That is why these guys are going on all podcasts and all news channels and they're writing blogs because they have to. They have to tell the world that buy Bitcoin because if they don't do that, nobody will buy and their value will not go up and they will look stupid. And they don't like to be looking stupid. So they want to tell the world, buy Bitcoin. So I, on the other hand, am not smart enough to tell you what Bitcoin is worth. Hmm. But I can tell you that traditional ways of valuation do not apply to Bitcoin because there's no cash flow. There's no comparable currency. And what does it take to create Bitcoin? I don't know. So um, it is worth, it is like similar to buying a Picasso. Hey, why is Picasso $200 million? I don't know, because it's rare. And some idiot paid $200 million for the last Picasso. So now all Picassos are $100 million. Okay, great. So it's more psychology than uh, I think. I mean, the technology, what I'm thinking about is uh, transferring large amounts of money. So billions, for example, it's very complicated uh, via the traditional banking system, in my opinion, still today. Uh, When you do it via Bitcoin, I mean, you can just... It's just a blink of an eye and you put it from wallet to wallet if you ignore the volatility. So there is some utility in the technology, but the value is also a mystery to me. Um, when we switch to another industry, it's the industry that I'm familiar with. It's drug development. Um, also here, I think it's very easy to evaluate a drug that's on the market that creates cash flows. Uh, that creates revenues where it's known how many patients are out there and uh, also the profile of the drug. When we look very early in the area of tech transfer, so when the technology comes out of university and goes into the first corporate shell, 
uh, then you read on the internet these amazing numbers. For example, uh, BioNTech got an investment of $500 million, private round, uh, far before the pandemic from a European family office uh, to move the mRNA technology forward. Um, how do you see valuations in this uh, pre-market drug development space? What models do you use to evaluate that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. So I have valued many pharma companies and many um, med device companies. And those valuations are very interesting and tricky. Um, because a, a drug, or I should say a molecule, could... Valuation can be anywhere between zero and $10 billion. The answer is somewhere in the middle. Let's take the average. That's the right answer. So every molecule is worth $5 billion. Is that the right answer? No. But the answer is somewhere between zero and $10 billion. So how do you know what is the right answer? Um, and usually, you know the right answer based on assumptions and efficacy studies and you know many things that you can look into. At the end of the day, it is all an assumption done by a smart analyst like me, just crunching numbers on Excel sheets. But it, it is all based on efficacy and probability and cash flows and market penetration or market size. So, I mean, I, I can look at um, 10 molecules that help the same disease or same problem. And each of them can be worth zero or $10 billion, or they could be worth negative because a company has to spend at least $200, $400, $500 million to get it to market, if they're able to get it to market. Um, so those valuations are actually far more interesting, life science or pharma valuations, mm -hmm. because you know they're also... You're almost assuming that, okay, how will this company do? Um, and then, you know, on top of that, one pharma company, one life science company might have 
two, four, six, ten molecules in works at the same time. So one molecule might give you 20 billion. One molecule might give you zero. One molecule might give you 100 million. One molecule might give you 50,000. I don't know. So it is really a... Um, you have to do a deep dive into the clinical trials, how the drug is, molecule is doing, um, how the market is reacting or how the trials are coming through, not just in the United States, around the world, because Europe has different laws in America and other parts of the world. Um, and profitability studies are very different. Um, and go-to-market strategies are very different. Same drug. Um, and, and, and market size is very different. Um, so, so those are far more involved than complex valuations. That's, I think, when I put what you said initially together with what you said now, it's, uh, I think it's a good starting point also for life science founders. It all starts with 1 million. So the first company shall uh, get $100,000 in, put the price tag of 1 million in when you can convince a business angel or two or three business angels to invest 100,000. We have the first price tag, but afterward, the team needs to sit down and do their homework. So as you said, uh, how many patients are out there? Uh, what's the competition? What's uh, the time to market? Which clinical trials need to be conducted? Uh, how much are they worth? How much money to the, does the team need? And this is really hard work and hardcore work. And very often, I've, I think uh, founders underestimate that. Um, my recommendation is always uh, get a professional on board like you are um, that helps you putting the model together and uh, does also support on the market research side. Uh, what's your recommendation to founders? Uh, when should they start uh, thinking about creating, uh, let's say, rational models uh, around the evaluation? What's the, what's the right point in time, in your opinion, after founding the first corporate The should and can hire somebody like me. But I want to highlight that even then, there's no 100% guarantee that they will have the right answer. Hmm. Even I, with all the tools and all the experience that I have, I cannot look into the future. And nobody can. So basically, I'm using my skills, my talent, my experience, my tools to predict the future when I'm trying to um, value a drug company or a molecule or if it's, or its efficacy. Um, now, my estimate is going to be better than yours because I do this all the time, hmm. but it's still not going to be 100% accurate. So yes, they should hire somebody um, a analyst or evaluation expert to help them, but it's still not necessary that they will find the right answer. They might be closer to the right answer than they were before, but it's not necessarily they find the right answer. Yeah, but I also believe it's uh, more an iteration process to come closer to the truth and to update the evaluation model. I mean, what I like with the evaluation work is that it's a clear set of rules to work through. 
And uh, it helps the team, in my opinion, to prepare for investment pitches. At the end of the day, investors will simply ask the same questions. What's your market? How many patients are out there? Uh, what's your cost structure? Uh, what's the risk in the development? And uh, if the team constantly refines the model, they are, in my opinion, on the safe side because they always have the right answers for investors. When I looked at your YouTube channel, um, you have a great channel. And when I thought about valuations, I'm always thinking in terms of businesses and in terms of drug development, medical devices, or uh, putting a price tag on, on products. And I never, ever thought about putting price tags on things like the Eiffel Tower. And mm -hmm. the first video that jumped into my eye on your YouTube channel was that you made a great video about putting a price tag on the Eiffel Tower. How does that work? <laughs> Again, Christian, the reason I can value all different kinds of assets and companies, unique assets and companies, is because you don't take your eye off the fundamentals. The fundamentals, they stay the same. It doesn't matter. If it's Eiffel Tower or the Golden Gate Bridge or the Atlanta Airport or Uber or Airbnb, it doesn't matter. The fundamentals of valuations stay the same. So I'm looking at Eiffel Tower. One way to look at it is what will it cost to rebuild the Eiffel Tower today? One way to look at it is what is a similar monument like Eiffel Tower anywhere else in the world costing today? Third way of looking at the Eiffel Tower is if Eiffel Tower were a business and it's making you this much cash flow a year, it's making the French government this yeah. much cash flow a year, say if it's making the French government, I don't know, $100 million a year, what would you pay for a business that gives you $100 million cash flow? Very simple. Forget about it's the Eiffel Tower. No, don't let that, don't let that cloud your judgment. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, it's when we allow the external things to cloud a judgment, that's when we are not good at what we do. That's why I'm saying stick with the fundamentals. Don't take your eye off the fundamentals. If you stay with that, you won't go wrong. So you can value anything. That's, that's true. I never saw it that way. Um, in the preparation to the podcast, you said you do a lot of, uh, you have created nice life habits. Can we talk a little bit about that? Uh, how, to, how do you set up your day? I have a uh, <laughs> I have a, a major morning routine. Um, I wake up at four. Um, I meditate for forty five minutes. Um, I do yoga for forty minutes, and then I read like a um, spiritual book for thirty thirty five minutes. Um, and then I shower, and then I start my day at six thirty. I start working at six thirty. Mm -hmm. So from four to six thirty, I'm just within myself. I'm not talking to anybody. I don't look at my phone. Um, I'm just spending time with myself. Um, and during the day, I read like a business book when I have chance. Usually, um, I stop my meetings around three three thirty, and so from three thirty to five o'clock, I either spend time with my children. I take them to the park, mm. or if it's raining or if they're not in the mood to go to the park. Um, I read like a business book. Um, and the evening, um, I meditate again after dinner. 
um, for 45 minutes again. Um, and I also read a fiction book just to relax and decompress. Um, and I watch TV, but I've cut back on watching TV because there's only bullshit on TV. It's all crap. Um, and I, and I love the book atomic habits. I think the book atomic habits is a very practical approach of how to do things, right? Everybody says, Oh, Christian, don't get angry. Oh, Christian, lose weight. Oh, Christian, you should exercise. Well, Christian knows that. You know what I mean? I'm not telling Christian anything new. But how? Nobody tells Christian how. That book tells you how. That's why I really like that book. I couldn't agree more. It's absolutely one of the best books I've ever read on that subject. Um, when I think on New Year's, New Year's resolutions, um, statistics I read lately was that by the second week of February, already about 80 to 90 percent of all New Year's resolutions failed. And my opinion also, this book uh, tells people the reasons why. So setting big goals is a great thing, but running a marathon, for example, I hear that very often in my circle of friends that they want to run a marathon. It's, it's a huge goal. How can you get started on running a marathon? And uh, James Gear has the answer. Just do a little bit every day. So, you know, back in the day when I used to work out, I would work out for hour, hour and a half. Hardcore workout. And the next day I'm dead. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I can't work out for two days because my body is hurting. Now I only work out. I actually do like physical yoga is only 20 minutes. Then I do breathing exercises and other things. The actual physical yoga is only 20 minutes. That's it. Because if I do more than that, I can't do yoga the next day. It's more important to be consistent. It's more important to do yoga every day or exercise every day than to do it for one hour or two hours one day and not do anything for three days. That's bad. Habits and consistency, that's absolutely the right approach. And when we talk about consistency in business, let me ask you one last question uh, for this podcast. Uh, when people hear the podcast and uh, want to learn more from you about valuation, uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into your business, which kind of services you offer and how people can reach out to you with business requests? Well, sure. I value companies, you know, when a founder or an entrepreneur is looking to raise capital, debt or equity, or they want to raise venture capital, they always need a valuation. Or if somebody's looking to sell a company, they need a valuation. And I help people. I help people internationally. So if it's Europe or America or Africa or Asia, it doesn't matter. Um, reach out to me. Um, you can go to my YouTube channel and there's a link to the contact me button. And if you have a question, reach out. I'm always here and I enjoy helping people. Bharat, thank you very much for your time and uh, giving great insights into life habits and valuations. Uh, I wish you, your family and your team a prosperous 2022 and let's catch up in a couple of months and maybe we have a separate podcast on life habits again. <laughs> Sounds great, Christian. Thank you again for having me. Have a great day. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.